everybody, Fab here. Just giving you a wee heads up. The Celtic Tales live shows, uh, two of them have been designated for Halloween horror stories. And they'll take place on Friday, the 27th of October, and Thursday, the 2nd of November. So they're going to be very scary stories. Won't be suitable for everybody. Definitely not for children. But for those who are brave enough, uh, come along. Uh, tickets from the link in the show notes. We'll have a lot of fun there. Okay. And here's the episode. Listeners, this is Rab. I'm here with Kerry, and we're going to do what are we doing Kerry? today. We are doing an extra special spooky episode of the Celtic Tales Chronicles for the month that's in it, October. Oh, yeah, we're doing the Halloween stories. It's a Halloween time. I enjoy Halloween when I was wee in Glasgow. We used to, uh, we used to call it guising. You got guys in, so you'd, I guess it comes from disguise or something. But mm. you got guys in, and you dress up, and you had to. You go to somebody's door, you chat the door, and then you kind of stood in the hallway. They'd invite you, and you stand in the hallway, and you had to do a wee kind of, kind of wee silly limerick or tell a joke, and then they'd give you a sweet or a bit of fruit. So yeah, it was fun, and it was just nice for the night time and all the wains out running about. Yeah, it's a nice buzz. Yeah, that sounds so fun. What did you do? Yeah, well, to be honest, growing up in the countryside, we didn't really do, you know, going door to door at all because all the houses were too far away from each other. Oh my God. Um, no, but it was it was still good though. Like I remember a lot of the time at school, we would, you know, day of Halloween or, you know, Friday before Halloween or whatever, we'd all dress up and bob for apples and play blind man's buff and all those um you know party games and stuff and that's kind of what i associate halloween with a lot of like games and like group activities and stuff like that ah that sounds very 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 nice indeed well um hi well we get into it then i'm i'm we're always happy to hear anybody else out there our listeners and i'm just for a moment we're getting listeners for everywhere now. I'm getting lots of DMs. I know you're getting DMs as well. We're starting these yeah. conversations with folk for various corners of the planet and Ireland. So. I know hopefully now the next thing will be people from the great beyond. Hopefully we're reaching out to some kind of oh entities, goodness. something like that. That could be very, very on the nose for Halloween. Do you know what? If I could get my granny to come to <laughs> the great beyond. <laughs> to be a guest. <laughs> That would uh, traumatize a lot of folk, but uh, yeah. All right. So what I'm so everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for the DMs. Well, beyond, thank yous as well. Thank you for your service. And uh, hi. Let's get into it. We've got a script here somewhere, and uh, or the, the bones of a script. All right. Well, we put on our professional faces now. Sounds All right. good. I'm like professional. All right. Let me find it. You want to kick off then? I will. So today, guys, we're talking about Samhain, or Halloween, which has its roots in the ancient pre-Christian culture of Ireland and Scotland. Yeah, it's the time of the year when the veil between this world and the worlds beyond grows very thin and strange things can happen. So what we're going to do is take a, a look at the, the Irish roots of the festival. And uh, we have already mentioned one possible Irish route. Ireland's got lots of possible stories. It's a land of stories. We mentioned one possible route in the second part of the UFO series. So in that episode, we discussed a Kerry man called Mogruth, who caught about the ancient Middle East in a flying saucer, having many adventures, including cutting off the head of John the Baptist. Mm. 
and eventually he returned to Ireland with his daughter, who became a very powerful magician in her own right, and apparently lit the very first Samhain fire. Okay, Kerry. That was a very succinct summary. Uh, <laughs> if you want to hear the more bigger version of the story, um, and all you want you to know about UFOs in modern Ireland and medieval Ireland, go and check out the UFO episodes. Um, but for more ideas about origins, well, stay tuned to this episode, and we'll explain a wee bit about that, and then we're going to do some spooky house stories from Ireland as well. Um, at the moment, as Kerry was saying, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, deep diving into other episodes, future episodes. We're unpacking more of the, the Wicked Skull deep series. Um, and then there's another series being worked on which covers, I don't want to give too much away, adventure, an adventurous life of a woman from this part of the world in the 1500s. Am I saying too much, Kerry? No, that's fine. I kind of let the cat out of the bag on culture night. But if, meow. if people don't know... Meow! <laughs> if people don't know, um, they can check out that episode. Yeah, go do that. So, yeah, and... Uh, but for now, we're going to take a look at the origins of Halloween. And then we're going to take a deep dive into all things ghostly and gruesome in Galway City and County. So, where, where should we start, Kerry? Right, so let's start at the beginning, I suppose. So, what people might not know is Halloween actually dates back thousands of years and began as an Irish festival known as Samhain. That's S-A-M-H-A-I-N. A Celtic religi- religious celebration to welcome the harvest at the end of the summer when people would light bonfires. And the festival of Samhain marked the transition to the new year at the end of the harvest and the beginning of the winter. And Celtic people believed that during the festival, spirits walked the earth. Yeah, they did indeed. Um, And then what happened later on is Christian missionaries, they introduced All Souls Day on November 2nd, which it kind of perpetuated the idea of the living coming into contact with the dead around the same time of the year. We'll do more on that later. But in order to avoid being terrorised by all the evil spirits walking the earth during Samhain, the Celts donned disguises. And the idea is that any spirits walking by would just think they were other spirits. They wouldn't think they were mortal humans and they would be left alone. Um, Other wee things to think about, black and orange, they're the kind of traditional Halloween colours, black and orange, and that also traces its roots back to the Celtic festival of Samhain. Yep, exactly. So for the Celts, black represented the death of summer, while the orange symbolised the autumn harvest season. During the Samhain festival, the souls of those who had died were believed to return to visit their homes, and those who had died during the year were believed to journey to the other world. So Mm. people set bonfires on hilltops, for relighting their hearth fires for the winter and to frighten away evil spirits. And as Rab said, they sometimes wore masks and other disguises to avoid being recognised by the ghosts thought to be present. It was in those ways that beings such as witches, hobgoblins, fairies and demons came to be associated with Halloween. Yeah, I, I just, I love this. It's just, these echoes just keep going, they keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, even though this pagan festival uh, was co-opted by the Catholic Church. Um, The 8th century Pope Gregory III, he designated November the 1st as a time to honour saints, not dead grannies who might come back and tell you strange stories. So you've got to honour your saints instead. Um, And soon after, All Saints Day came to incorporate some of the traditions of Samhain. The evening before All Saints Day, was known as All Hallows Eve and later Halloween. So we have All Saints Day and All Souls Day, which is, I'm just going to say, not confusing at all. I know. And you may have also heard of the Mexican holiday Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead. There's going to be an upcoming bonus episode on our Patreon from me and my dear friend Fernanda, who is a Mexican bookfluencer living in Galway, 
talking about all things Day of the Dead. So we're not diving into that today. We're going to dive into that on the Patreon. Yeah, check out the Patreon. There's lots of bonus episodes getting put up there as well. But we'll get talk about that another time. Um, anything else that we need to think? Do you know what? Uh, one of the things I used to do in my, my children's week was carving the pumpkins. I really enjoyed mm. carving those pumpkins. So, Kerry, where did this carving pumpkins come from? Great question. Okay. Yeah. So, as we know, pumpkins are not an Irish vegetable, as far as no I'm aware. No way. No. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, back in the day, people used to actually carve faces into turnips, of all things. Oh. So, of course, it comes from a myth. Legend has it it's based on a tale about a man called Stingy Jack who repeatedly mm. trapped the devil and only let him go on the condition that Jack would never go to hell. Sounds good, right? Stop for a minute. Yeah. My granny used to tell us, I'm, I'm, when I die, I'm going to hell because of the best parties there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, anyway, carry on. Yes. That's fab. So sounds good. He's not going to go to hell. However, when Jack died, he learned that heaven did not want his soul either. So he was forced to wander the earth as a ghost for eternity. The devil gave Jack a burning lump of coal in a carved out turnip to light his way. And locals eventually began carving scary faces into their own turnips and filling them with burning embers from the Samhain bonfires to light their way home and also frighten away evil spirits. So that's where the name Jack-O-Lantern actually comes from, because it's about a man ah, called Jack. Okay, okay. So we have our turnips, now our pumpkins. So when large numbers of immigrants, including the Irish, went to the United States in the mid-19th century, around the time of the famine, mm. they took their Halloween customs with them. And in the 20th century, Halloween became one of the biggest holidays in the US. However... When those Irish went across the pond, as they could not find turnips, pumpkins became the go-to vegetable for carving faces in. And literally because they couldn't find turnips and they used pumpkins instead, now all over the world people associate pumpkins with Halloween. It's sort of like a happy accident. That's amazing. It's like there's a whole industry. There's like economies yeah. and employment and traditions. Pumpkin based... patches. Yeah. Yeah. All based on the fact that these folks could they find a turnip? So that's that's brilliant. Okay. Uh, you know what? I was just thinking there. I was visiting Romania many years ago, and kind of out in the rural parts of Romania, you get these lovely carvings on gates and stuff at the front of houses, mm. and on also around the the kind of eaves of the house. And if I remember it, the carvings are the same kind of thing. It was to kind of keep the house protected from any spirits that were going around doing things but i mean you get all these traditions around the world that's i, I love all these things anyway yeah <laughs> what can i say there's, there's, okay. there's, romanians believe in sp spooky stuff too so there you go very good okay um all right i went after that we went there but anyway back to the script that's all right um all right excuse me all right so this uh, Jack fellow could still be wandering around Ireland today. So if you see a man with a turnip, I would if say... If you see a man with a turnip and, you know, or a strange man comes to your door and you go, that's a, that's a turnip for the books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that uh, was very good. Okay. Yes, listen. but I think I think that the um, the turnips look way creepier than the pumpkins. To be, I think... A lot of people carve very cute faces into pumpkins. Yeah. Nowadays. Yeah. And I don't know. I think the turnips are a lot creepier. So I'll post some on Instagram and you can yeah, follow I'm... me on at the Kerry Graham and we can be traumatized together. Yeah, because you mentioned that to me and I went looking and actually I'm going to say, again, mm. don't go and look at them. <laughs> they're really <laughs> disturbing. I mean, they're really... Oh... There's, those those turnip carvings can be quite quite intense. They're quite intense. They're almost like slasher movie faces. They're quite yeah. So there you go. Um, let's discuss some more of the Halloween traditions that spread from Ireland, UK. Uh, okay, excuse me. All right, there are other um, 
Halloween traditions that have travelled from Ireland and the UK to the rest of the world. So let's have a wee quick dive into them. And uh, I think uh, Kerry was mentioned some of them parties when she was at, which was we the game of bobbing for apples. And that's been a staple for Halloween parties for many years. We do it ourselves. Um, but its origins are more rooted in love and romance. And we love love and romance here. The game traces back to a courting ritual that was part of a Roman festival honouring Pomona, the goddess of agriculture, with the harvest and abundance. While multiple versions existed, the gist was that young men and women would be able to predict their future relationships based on the game. When the Romans conquered the British Isles in 43 AD, the Pomona festival blended with the similarly timed Southern festival. I think there's just a lot of like games involving apples, to be honest, because they were probably fairly abundant yeah. at the time. Do you know, like the, they didn't have any pumpkins. But I remember a game we played with apples in school where you would twist the apple and hold on to the stalk and say the alphabet out loud. And whatever letter you had landed on when the stalk broke was the first letter of the name of the person you would marry. Oh, and did it work, Kerry? Only time will tell, Rob. I'm only 26. What am I, a child bride? Okay. Okay. <laughs> fine, fine, grand. <laughs> I'm going to just tell. That's okay. That's grand. Okay, well, moving on. This time of the year was also thought to be favourable for divination on matters such as marriage, health and death, along with spooky hauntings and half-priced chocolates. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that Galway City and County are probably the most haunted places on the entire planet. Yeah. But a simple way to begin unpacking those stories is to begin with a shop sign that went viral on the internet back in 2016. A local subway, of all things, in Galway had put up a sign in the window which read, Ouija boards and seances are not allowed to be performed in this shop. Haunt your own house. Thank you. When contacted by online digital zine Joe.ie, the manager Leanne Kelly explained, quote, The building is from the 1600s and we believe there is a ghost on the third floor. I had to put up this sign to stop any curious staff from attracting other ghosts. End quote. Which, honestly, if you live in Galway, that makes absolute sense. Galway City has a long history of bloody events, murders, invasions, battles, pirates... And mass murderers, it's, it's, yeah, you can't move without tripping over one of the above. Ah, it's wall-to-wall hauntings. And some of these tales involve ghosts, poltergeists, dead bodies. But of course, this being the west of Ireland, the fairies also do some scary stuff. In fact, there's so much weird shit in this part of the world that for this <laughs> episode, we're just going to focus on two yeah. tales of strange and spooky <laughs> things that have happened in houses in Galway. Yeah. And what one incident we're going to discuss happened 200 years ago, and one happened only 26 years ago, so the very year I was born. The very first story <laughs> involves the owners of Castle Hackett House and their fraught relationship with the fairies. Yeah. Um, so, this part of the world, the folklore, the folklore tradition is that Connacht is ruled over by two powerful fairies, Finvara and his wife, Lady Una. And among other things, these two magical beings protect crops in the West by fighting off invasions from other fairy kingdoms, most notably the fairies from Scotland. And according to tradition, if the Connacht fairies should be defeated, then the crops will fail. Lady Una and Finbarra live in a splendid palace beneath Nokma Hill, which is northeast of Galway City near Tume. Nokma is an incredible place to visit, and the landscape all around is filled with myth and legends. Below the hill, there's the fairy palace. And my computer has decided to tell me it wants to restart. No. <laughs> so below the what? hill, there's the fairy palace. I'm going palace. to just say, that's, that is very interesting. That's the fairies themselves are interfering with your computer because they're about to give away secrets. Of, yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah, but on the very top of the hill, there are ancient prehistoric burial mounds, and one of which is said to be the burial mound of Queen Maeve, who fought against Cúchulainn of Ulster. Yeah. Finvara watches over these tombs, as well as other passageways that link this world to the worlds beyond. And for that reason, he is also known as the King of the Dead. Now, according to tradition, fairies rule the land below, while we mortals rule the land above. And in the case of the green fertile land around Nochmah, the land was owned by a branch of the Kerwin family, one of the tribes of Galway, whose emblem is on one of the flags at the very top of Air Square. Yeah, see them. They're all fluttering away there. Um, now, these powerful families, they've all got a long history, some parts glorious, some parts bloody. But in the 17th century, many of these families began to grow more rich and more powerful with wealth coming from the labours of enslaved peoples in North America. And just a quick sidebar, a lot of people mix up enslavement with indentured labour. Many people, including Irish people, worked as indentured labourers in America and the Caribbean. Some were indentured as prisoners, some signed up. However, the main thing about indentured labour was that it had a time limit. Your period of labour would end, it would not pass on to your children. Also, as a human being, you also had certain rights. For example, your family could not be taken from you and sold. All of these rights limited how much work the plantation owners could squeeze out of their workers. So instead, they began to use enslaved people, in particular African people and people of African descent. Yeah. With these people, there was no limits you know, to the violence, the brutality, it can be beaten out of them. Um, it's kind of outside this episode, but um, the Galway City Museum has got their own podcast and they have a discussion about that there. So I would, uh, we'll put a wee link down in the, the notes and you can listen to that and you'll just, yeah, get an idea. Look at uh, the podcast. Their episode's called uh, Galway Slave Traders and Sugar Planters in the Caribbean by Dr. Orla Power. So go and have a listen to that if you want to know more about it. And you should. Okay. And one of the families that benefited from the slave trade was the Kerwins. By the late 1600s, John Kerwin was mayor of Galway and had bought a vast estate around Knockmah. This estate had been owned by a Norman family, the Hackets, and there was a 13th century Norman tower on the land. Yeah. The tower's all ruined now. I've, I've been to the tower and it's you can still kind of uh, climb into the, the ruins of it. It's kind of there's, mm. you can get into the ground floor, the floor above it, and it, I'm sure it's not a very safe place. But it's it looks like something you would see in a horror movie or maybe a Harry yeah. Potter movie. It's quite magical. There's all these kind of vines and mosses, and you can imagine owls and all sorts living in there. Um, but yeah, it's it's and then you get the beautiful view of you know, Nokma and the landscape around as well. So the Norman Tower was too small and cramped for the wealthy Kerwins. So in the early 1700s, they had a great manor house built, which they called Castle Hackett House. But of course, while they ruled the estate, they also had to deal with their neighbours, Finbara and Lady Una. And there's a lot of folk tales about the relationship between the Kerwins and these royal fairies. But there's one particular story, given how the Kerwins made their wealth, which is very interesting. A hundred years after Castle Hackett House was built, the estate was ruled by another John Kerwin, this one a major in the British Army. He in turn had a son, also called John. Now, according to the folklore, this son had a great talent for singing, and he learned Irish songs and songs from all across Europe and he would sing these songs at functions held in the Great House. Think about all those Jane Austen films with rich landlords gathered around a piano and the military men in their fine red jackets and all the ladies giggling and blushing. As they do, yeah. Um, but of course, it was not only mortal Cubans who heard young John sing. Fairies passing by the house heard the boy's beautiful voice, and they in turn told Lady Una, the Queen of the Connacht Fairies. So over time, whenever there was a ball, 
she would come to listen to the boys sing. Nobody knew she was there, of course, because she was a fairy and she could turn herself invisible or take on the guise of a bird or an insect. And the more that Lady Una heard the boy John sing, the more she wanted to keep him forever. One day, Major John and his son were riding round the estate on their horses. As they came to the foot of Knockmar Hill, they were approached by a very regal woman sat astride a great white horse. The Major knew immediately that this was Lady Una, and he spoke to her very respectfully. But Lady Una cut him off and said, I have heard your son sing. He has a very fine voice. Before Major Kerwin could thank her, she went on. In fact, he has such a splendid voice. I want to have him. Give him to me so he can sing for all eternity in my palace below the hill. Now Major John was horrified. I cannot give you my son, he sputtered. But Lady Una laughed and said, Ah, you want a price for him. Very well, I shall buy him from you. How much do you want for him? I cannot sell my son, said Major John. He is a nice child, Lady Una. You cannot have him. Lady Una did not say another word. She just looked from the Major to the boy, smiled and then vanished. That night, John and his son were back at Castle Hackett House. As the family and servants were settling down, they heard an awful sound, a wretched screaming coming from young John's bedroom. His mother and father rushed in to see their child writhing on the bed, clutching to his belly, groaning and then screaming as if in terrible pain. The Kerwins sent servants out to fetch doctors from Galway, but nothing could be done. The pain grew worse, the child rolling and writhing on the bed, twitching and flexing as if being tortured. This went on for a week. By now, doctors had arrived on from Dublin using the Dublin to Tume train. The greatest physicians were in the Castle Hackett House, but nothing could be done. Within a week, the boy died. The boy died, and the boy was buried. But did his soul go to heaven, or was it trapped beneath Knockmar Hill, forced to sing songs to the fairies for all eternity? I find this such an incredible story. Basically, the Queen of the Fairies wanted this boy to be her slave, and Lord Kerwin, whose family's wealth was built on the blood of enslaved people, refused, only to suffer the consequences. Yeah, fairies don't fuck around. If you've annoyed them, they'll do bad things to you. They're very powerful beings. However, they're not all powerful. According to folklore, in the 1840s, this is much after them, the story we've just told. In the 1840s, locals saw a great fairy battle taking place in the sky above Nokmar. It is not known who the Connacht fairies were fighting, but they must have lost the fight. For following the battle, the potato crop failed, and so began Angorta Mor, the great hunger, the famine that killed at least one million Irish men, women and children. And was it the Scottish fairies that they were fighting? Actually, we know for sure it was not the Scottish fairies that were fighting. For Scotland also suffered a famine in the following year. Shit, maybe the Connacht fairies and the Scottish fairies joined forces to fight whatever malign power was making war in the fairy realm. That's a wild tale. And whatever happened to Castle Hackett House? The IRA blew up in January 1923 as you do. Uh, the explosion was so powerful, it's the roof of the house flew into the air and the house burnt to the ground. Oh my God, was anybody hurt? No, but then it was empty. This was during the Irish Civil War and anti-treaty IRA were worried the Free State Army would use the house as a base, so boom, up it went. That was a lovely wee tale about fairies to tell the children. Oh, yeah. And talking <laughs> of children, I think it's time to tell the tale of the Corrib Park Poltergeist. Oh yeah, it's a great story. 
it's it's well known to gobby people, but it's always worth retelling. I think though, maybe for our international listeners, we should give a little bit of background to the Coral Park estate where the story takes place and the surrounding area. Sure. So the estate is on the west side, which basically means it's on the west side of the Corrib River. It was originally built as a council housing estate in the 1970s. It's walking distance from the university and from the hospital. And over the years, the surrounding area has expanded with more estates, both private housing and council. Nowadays, there are a lot of facilities very close by the shopping centre, Westside Library, Westside Mosque, the Boxing Club. Anything else, Rob? There's a, a Westside Youth Project. There's the Coral Rangers Football Club. And uh, yeah, a lot of the children there go to Skull um, Bridge at the primary school. Mm. And I've been collaborating on amazing storytelling projects for the last 15 years or so. So there's a lot going on there. And I think what's interesting that it's now an urban landscape, but it's still a landscape that, you know, it carries. Uh, incredible stories, folklore, history, and just modern stories that keep just kind of churning up mm. as well. Well, it is named after the Corrib River, which has a whole heap of incredible stories attached to it. So I guess it's not that surprising that a poltergeist would turn up in 1997. Yeah, but what I think surprising is it's a poltergeist turns up the year you are born. So. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I'm just saying, I've seen the movie Damien. There's, there's or yeah, Kerry, you are. Are you the Antichrist? Do, 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 do. Do, do, All right. Do, 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 do. Now, we are going to focus because this is a fascinating story. And it's one of these brilliant podcast stories where there's so much information about it because there was lots of witnesses, there's lots of accounts of what happened. And I've even talked to some of the people in that area who witnessed the hunting. And yeah, there's a book, there's RTE programs, there's interviews with families, neighbours. I think for our retelling, we're going to focus on some of the notes I made when I was chatting to local folk and also the RTE interviews. And we'll put links to the RTE interview in the show notes. So there was a normal everyday family living in their normal everyday house in Corrib Park. There were two parents, Jackie and Esther who lived with their adult children, Michael and Martha. And then the family was joined by Martha's newborn baby daughter. She's great. What could be lovelier than having a wee baby join the household? I, I love babies. I imagine the baby must have been born in the maternity unit over in the hospital. That's where all the Galway babies seem to be born. They're at, they are. They're all born there. And if you look, you can see lots of storks flying in and out of the windows of the maternity <laughs> unit. It's very sweet. But the baby had no sooner arrived than strange things began to happen. First of all, there was a bad smell. And not a normal baby bad smell. A really bad smell. The family mm. cleaned the house, cleaned it again, but this weird smell would always return. Yeah, and according to some accounts, family members, you know, as well as the smell, they started spending themselves, when they go into the baby's room, they were getting pushed away as if something was trying to stop them from seeing the baby. Soon things got worse. Objects were being thrown around by an invisible force. There'd be sudden drops in temperature. It was clear that something supernatural was happening. One of the accounts I heard was from a neighbour of the family. And Martha, who'd had the baby, and her family, they were going out one night. So the neighbour and a couple of her friends were going to babysit. They settled the baby. But a little later, they heard the baby crying. So they checked on the baby, but the baby was fast asleep. But even though the baby was asleep, they could still hear crying. So oh they made their way down the yeah, they made their way down the stairs, following the noise of this crying into the kitchen. And suddenly, in the front of their eyes, the kitchen table was flipped over. That must have been terrifying. My soul would leave my body if that happened to me. Oh my god. Yeah, it's like kind of dark. You know, kitchens at night time, they're dark. Yeah. They're, they're kind of spooky anyway. And they, they are. They really are. I, oh, I have shivers. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not pleasant. And there's more scary stuff. Um, So these things kept happening. 
So they called in a priest to get rid of the ghost. But instead, the priest was thrown out of the house by some invisible force. Which might sound mad, but it's not that unusual because if you know your Irish folklore, confrontations between priests and the invisible powers happen quite a lot. So what did they do then? Well, not surprisingly, the family fled from the home. I think I would also definitely leave. But our listeners will be pleased to hear this was not the end of the story, because this is where a very interesting character comes into the tale. Enter Sandra. How do I say her surname, Rob? I think it's Ramdani. Ramdani. Perfect. Yeah. Enter Sandra Ramdani. Yeah. I, I hope that's the name. Sandra, please reach out to us and tell us if it isn't. Um, you know what? Just we say, but I do love the fact that when we're doing this podcast, there's always these weird people popping up who've got their own very special interests in the esoteric. Mm. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Well, all these folk, how much is real, how much is theatre? I don't know. But given the amount of weird, given the amount of weird shit I've seen in my life, Kerry, I'm just going to say I have a lot of time to believe folk who are talking to me about weird stuff, you know? So if you say uh, you're an alien leprechaun from planet X out in the cloud at the very age, edge of interstellar space, I'm going to be fine with that, all right? I'm telling you, I'm going to be fine with it. So, and uh, I mean that sincerely. So, Sandra, I'm Danny. Um, we'd absolutely love to chat to you. Yeah. So, Kerry, tell us more about Sandra Ramdani. I will. And before I do, I just want to say a cup just fell off my, my desk. Yeah. I'm feeling very spooked <laughs> right now. So we're going to keep going. And then I'm going to go outside into the sunshine when we finish recording. Because uh, I don't think there's any ghosts out there. No, uh, we've had a few weird things that today's recording yeah, happened. Which is, have, uh, yeah. Some of it might edit out. But uh, yeah, it's been a weird day. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, go. According to her Wikipedia page, Sandra was born on Halloween night in Trinidad of mixed Irish and Indian heritage, and she now lives in Dublin. She describes herself as a psychic psychologist, and she taught at the Royal College of Surgeons before becoming a full-time psychic psychologist. She has stated that psychic abilities are an innate part of the human consciousness and that they are not supernatural powers. She has stated that her goal is to help people develop their own psychic powers, while also believing people in successful positions are already using psychic abilities and that their success can be attributed to this. I know, very interesting. And she began experiencing psychic events at the age of two did psychic work online for the Jerry Ryan show and has built up a reputation as Ireland's go-to person for hauntings and exorcisms. And she also says that the term psychic has been misappropriated by fraud. And I think that's really interesting because you do hear a lot about people going to psychics and saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm hearing something, somebody who's passed on recently and then you know, the person will say, oh, yes, my grandmother died this year. And once they have that information, they can say, oh, that's who it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. There is. It's a really weird thing. It's like, okay, I think there are folk who abuse these things. But you know what? I think mm. there's folk who abuse a lot of things. But there's also folk who are very sincere. And actually, do you know what? It's, I, it's, to me, it's somebody creating a space for somebody else to speak their feelings and emotions and dig into it. And whether it's, you know, a psychic or whether it's your doctor or your, you know, your, who do you go, you know, your Wiccan or whatever you go to, yeah. you know, it's, you know, just, I, I guess, trust your gut. If your gut's telling you it's a fraud, it's a fraud. If your gut's telling mm. you I'm enjoying this and I feel like I'm getting something good from it, then you are. That's just what I'm going to say. So that's anyway. a fantastic way to put it, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. So um anyway, the interesting thing with this story is it was beginning to like make local and international news. Apparently it was getting reported in various countries in Europe as well. This wow. strange stuff that was going on in Galway. 
and there's a wonderful reenactment of the haunting on YouTube and it's well worth checking out for the dramatic music and the narration. It is. And at some point I might try and find a wee bit of that to put in because I don't have it just now, Kerry. That's but, all right. No bother. We'll pop you know it what? in the episode notes. We'll put it in the episode notes. Yeah. I mean, the main thing for us is that there's a reporter and she mentioned Ramdani to the Fahi family and they were very desperate and they helped out. They, they were desperate and they reached out to her to see if she could help them. And so she came over to see what she could do and to cut a long story short, because we don't have all day, she experienced a powerful psychic vision in the baby's room. A series of violent flashes and she saw, and then the room changed into another room entirely in which a young woman was giving birth as an angry man watched her. And as soon as the baby was born, the man snatched the child and as the young woman screamed in horror, he killed the child with his own hands. Uh, so according to some accounts, the man was a priest who had lived a hundred years ago and the young woman was a nun who he had got pregnant. Another version of the story was that the priest killed the nun and then buried the baby alive. Yeah. I love these stories. They kind of grow as they kind of filter into the the local you know environment and culture so it's a story that's grown but whatever version clearly something traumatic was impacting on that house mm. i think what's interesting about this incident is that it may or may not actually be a real event but it certainly does channel some very real trauma that the catholic church did inflict on babies and mothers yeah i mean when we spoke about Nokma hill we mentioned Chum, a town outside Galway. Well, Chum has a very haunting story. It's, it's, it's quite a, I'm just going to give a trigger warning to folk. Um, between 1925 and 1961, there was a home for unwed mothers called the St. Mary's Mother and Baby Home. The home was run by the Bon Secours Sisters, a religious order of Catholic nuns. And during their regime, a lot of babies vanished. Yeah. It is estimated that up to a thousand were sold via adoption agencies outside Ireland. Others were said to have died from neglect and their bodies were buried in a defunct sewage duct. Local historian Catherine Corliss began to investigate this horrific story. It turns out it was all true and the remains of 796 babies were exhumed. Yeah, I mean, fuck. I mean, it's, it's, it's a horror story. Yeah. And it's real, you know, it's, what can you say? It's it's like those fucking war crime burials in Bosnia and other places. Only it's real, it's absolutely real, and it happened here in Ireland. So this year, the government set up a team to begin the task of identifying these babies so they can finally be given a proper burial. And I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast uh, that I listen to called Red Handed. Yeah. It's based in the UK oh, and yeah. they, yeah, they have a great, it's a true crime podcast. They have a great episode on the tomb, the tomb babies and the 796. Um, oh. So I definitely recommend listening to that if you want more information on it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I haven't heard that. I mean, I, I, I know the podcast, but I haven't mm. heard that episode. Okay. Yeah. Um. I think the, the idea is the, Babies will be identified and then they can be given a a proper burial, you know, mm. given a name, given a burial, families can know and all that. But I think it's to be pointed out that it's a fucking huge crime, but no members of the religious orders will be jailed. I feel so. like, yeah, it's just horrendous. I think what's interesting about this is that the hypocrisy of the church in Ireland has always been known. But it was only really in the 1990s that it burst out into the public discourse with the revelations about Eamon Casey. Yeah. Eamon Casey, he was the Bishop of Galway from 1976 to 1992. And in 1992, he resigned after Annie Murphy revealed that she'd had a son by him. And he tried to force her to put the child up for adoption. And after that, more and more revelations about the Catholic Church were only discussed. And of course, 
Later, much later, more revelations came out about Eamon Casey, including sexual abuse and the rape of his own niece. So, yeah, yeah again, horror, horror stories. In the 1990s in Ireland, the church remained very powerful and very influential. A lot of people talk about the 1995 referendum on divorce being a turning point. Irish people voted to include the right to divorce in the constitution. However, this vote was very, very close. I would say too close for comfort. Yeah. 50.28% voted yes to allowing divorce. 49.72% voted against. And in Galway West, where all this is going to be happening, this poltergeist stuff, the no vote won the most votes. 51.4% voted no to 48.6% voting yes for divorce. So this haunting of the Fahey family happened in a very tumultuous time in Irish history. And this paranormal event reflected the very real and fierce debates going on in Ireland and in Galway. Nowadays, nobody would care that Martha had a baby as an unmarried mother. But in 1997, it was still a huge issue to be seen having a baby out of wedlock. Yeah. And in one sense, this experience of this family reflects the bigger forces at play in Ireland at this time. And it's just so crazy how Ireland has changed so much in my lifetime and certainly for the better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So much for the better. Yeah. Um. I think this is why I love folk tales and supernatural stories. You know, some people dismiss them as silly or as frivolous. Mm. You actually dig into them. And I think we've spoke about this before in previous episodes. That they, they actually speak to very real truths and communities and cultures and individuals and all the things they have to navigate through just to live normal, sane lives. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the Fahi family tried to get back to normal life reached out to Sandra and fair play to her she really helped that family and her after her psychic flashes about the murderous priest she created a cleansing ritual for the family uh, so while the baby was looked after by relations Martha's baby the rest of the family returned to the house the psychic psychologist lit incense and she like you know stones and all this kind of thing and she had the family stand around the empty crib of Martha's baby. And then they had to visualise that other baby, the one that had been killed 100 years ago. They had to visualise it and imagine lifting it and releasing it into the worlds beyond so it could finally find peace. And this they did. And the haunting ended. Yeah, so the wee child soul was released and Ireland slowly began its journey to being a more tolerant place yeah it's a really loving and peaceful ending to a very difficult time for that family that's a really nice ending to this episode as well mm. um i'll put a link in again to the rte uh, interview with martha's brother michael because he takes a moment to actually talk about the the ritual and he talks about his own experience of seeing he actually sees the baby he talks about how he saw this wee baby from 100 years ago and he saw it in his his sister's baby's crib you know his, and yeah and how he saw it with this light around it and how he saw it rising up to actually go into peace so yeah I'll, we'll, we'll put the links to that as well check that out so yeah that's a yeah Listeners, that's a nice, happy, we went through a bit of a, some dark bits, but yeah, I like that story because it's got a lovely ending to it. Definitely, a happy ending, which is exactly what we all want. Yeah. yeah. So, what a roller coaster of an episode today. We've been, we've been through it. We've been through it, and you know what? The powers have been invading. The, the they have. Things falling down and... Things Thank not working, and oh my god! Yeah, so. I'll have to get the incense out now and do my own cleansing ritual. Yeah, you have to kind of visualize strange things. So that's that was that was uh, that's us. So that's our Halloween episode. Everybody, have a lovely Halloween, and uh, I guess we can. Uh, what are you? What's when news for you, Kerry? Before we head off and let folk relax. Um. 
trying to think. The biggest thing that's happened in my life now is I've gone part time with my day job, which is great. Cool. Um, oh, I think we're frozen here now. Oh, here no. we go. We're back. Yeah, that's more technical difficulties. Honestly, it's, uh... we're getting we're getting haunted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, all going well. I was up in Donegal. Um, oh, you had a lovely time. I saw the pictures. Yeah. Oh, they were lovely pictures. Oh, it was so nice. Actually, it was. Um, I went to, I went to the beach. Went for a big walk, and a friend of mine from secondary school had passed away last year, and oh. I finally went to see her grave, and that oh. was really, it was really nice to go see it, and she's. Yeah. Buried out beside the beach that we used to go to, and oh. it was just kind of, yeah, okay. it was it was nice to be able to see that. So I um, hope wherever she is, she's relaxing and having a good time. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a nice place to to rest. Ah, yeah. oh, okay, I'm very sorry about that. Yeah, but it's a nice place and it's a nice grave. Exactly. So I think, I is think, that... yeah. Yeah. Okay. That I. Yeah, I'm going over to Scotland in a couple of weeks to visit my mother's graves. Oh, yeah, yeah, graves are quite important. You know, they're just nice yeah. places to connect with our loved ones. Yeah. Definitely. I think I think graves are really, especially, you know, like there's Graveyard Sunday and there's different, you know, days where people will go out and bring fresh flowers and stuff. I think it can be very cathartic to go visit somebody, to have a place to go visit them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's again back to the tune babies. This is what they want. There's this that kind of catharsis part of it as well. Yeah. So, and you're going to be talking to Fernanda. Yes, about... I will be talking to Fernanda about Day of the Dead. So we might put a wee snippet of that up on up on the main feed, and then put the rest of it on on spot on Patreon. Sorry, not. Um, <laughs> it's not right, but um, I think yeah, I think we both. I think we're. Lots of technical difficulties. I think we're ready to to I'm ready, wrap ready, up ready today. finish up. So everybody, listeners, thank you for listening again. Thank you for everybody who's DMing either me or uh, Kerry. There, um, we are going to set up a, a proper link. You can. We do have an email though, don't we? We yeah. do. We have an email. We have the Celtic Tales Chronicles at gmail.com you can drop us a line there which would be great we'd love to hear from you yeah. um otherwise just get us on instagram rabs celtic tales galway and i'm the Kerry groom so yeah you can reach out to us there too yeah chat to us there and uh yeah have a lovely spooky halloween and watch out for men with carved turnips yeah <laughs> okay it's long Gary long okay The Celtic Tales Chronicles is written, hosted and produced by Kerry Graham and Rob Fulton. Edited by Rob Fulton. Cover artwork by Kerry Graham. Music by Kevin McLeod.